With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 5, Episode 42. In Episode 42, we heard the second half of my 2018 interview with David Jacoby. And this half of the interview focused more on David's life and experience after 2007 when the DNA results became public and he, his name began to be drugged through the mud. I am joined today. We're doing something a little different today, so hopefully all the audio works out. Uh, but we have we have jumped into strongly into 2016 and started using Zoom for our uh, follow up recording. So I can actually see Mike and Zach, and they are both joining us. Hello, Zach. Hey, hey. And what's up, Michael? Hey, how's it going? Why did you say 2016? Because Zoom is not new, and I almost said that we jumped into this new technology. Oh. But gotcha. But this is oh. this is not a new thing. I just finally decided to try it now. It's hurting me because remember, I I've been working on this magical green screen technology for like two years now, and have pumped thousands of dollars and hours of time into learning it, and then I've got this free app now that does it for for free. Right? Yeah, and. And for the, if you're not on Patreon, you know, our Patreon subscribers at the $5 a month level get ad-free videos, or excuse me, ad-free versions of all of our episodes. And they also get videos of behind the scenes of these Friday follow-up episodes, which we've already been recording that video for 40 minutes now. Um, so they get a lot more bonus content. And they're also watching, we discovered through Zoom that we can um, put <laughs> custom backgrounds in. I was having issues with my script, with my, with my background. So I'm currently shirtless. And the the photo that I used is a photo of a marijuana grow behind me, so it looks like I'm sitting in a marijuana field. I thought you weren't Mike. talking about this. I know. I, is this go? <laughs> is this going on? Is this going on? We the literally podcast? just had a whole conversation about not talking about this. Yes, it's going on the podcast. Uh, and, and Mike is sitting <laughs> and sitting in front of a beautiful picture of a chicken patty sandwich. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about your chicken patty sandwich? <laughs> That's a homemade chicken patty sandwich, Bob. And that's it all I'm telling good. you. You don't, you, don't get the, you don't get the secret recipe from me, man. <laughs> I see some Munster cheese and some lettuce. How do you know it's Munster, Bob? It could be mozzarella or provolone or any other white cheese. I know Munster when I see it, Mike. <laughs> okay, it's Munster. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, hopefully all this audio works out where this is definitely, again, this is not new technology, but it's new to us. So hopefully all this works out. And so let's go ahead and get started with your questions about David Jacoby's interview. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Our first question comes from Melanie. Not really related to the David Jacoby interview, but would love to hear your thoughts on the West Memphis 3 podcast episode of The Murder Squad. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to talk about that that podcast, at least for a few minutes. Um, the, the reason being that I got, I don't know, 200 messages yesterday from listeners, and there were several posts on the fan page about the uh, this Murder Squad podcast. So one, I, I don't know much about the host other than one of the main hosts is Paul Holes, who is, um, he is a former detective. He was, I know he worked with Jim Clemente. At one point, I don't think they do any more, and, and Paul hosts like several shows, I think, on the Discovery ID network. Um, he's well-respected. I don't Like I said, I don't know a lot about him, but I've always kind of held him in high regards because kind of everybody else did. But I have to say that I, I finally went through and listened to this episode, and there was a lot of misinformation. I think Paul was very ill-prepared to discuss the case, and, and so my, my intention here is in no way to to bash on Paul, but just to make sure that our audience who is who is trying to really investigate the case doesn't fall into the trap of a lot of misinformation because, you know, it's coming from someone as respected as Paul, most people would assume that what he's saying was accurate and it just didn't seem to be the case in in, in this case. And Zach, you listened to it too and I know you said you've got some notes on it. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I it's uh it was alarming to hear. I mean, it's pretty absurd. You know, I actually, in the middle of listening to it, text you to ask you about it because it didn't even seem real. I mean, the, his theory that he came up with just really doesn't fit anything. It's like he didn't do much research past the 93 evidence. Like, he, he just read what the, the original pathology report and just kind of went off of that. Yeah, and, and to to his defense... He said in the podcast that he'd been researching the case for all of a week and a half. And we all know that this is not a case that you can absorb in a week and a half. You know, the whole the whole idea and the the thoughts behind this case for people like us that believe the West Memphis 3 are innocent is that the original investigation was also in my opinion was was crooked. It was definitely once they decided that Damian, Jason and Jesse were their guys, they manipulated and twisted facts and evidence to try to make it uh, to to strengthen their case because they really didn't have much of a case. And so he only, Paul only seemed to go off of Dr. Peretti's original autopsy. And I don't know if he used his trial testimony, but it was like, 
it was like jumping into a time machine. I mean, he he looked at it and said, you know, I know there's theories that there was some animal predation, um, but I'm looking at these injuries and looking at the original pathology report, and that's just not true. The you know the emasculation of Chris Byers was done by a knife, and the the marks up and down Chris Byers' inner thighs that was somebody. I don't remember what the term he used, but like we're basically like picking at him yeah, with a knife, pickering or pickerism. Yeah, and and that's how that was presented at trial because they're trying to kind of bring in the and he even said like the marks on Chris's shoulder look like somebody scraping you with the back of a serrated knife. That's literally exactly what the prosecution presented at trial, and and that that was one of the big things where listeners were messaging me like, hey, you know, Paul is a very respected investigator and detective and he's saying that was not animal predation but so what i want to point out without again bashing on on paul is that that was a very ill-informed opinion since peretti looked at it the most um most world famous and highly respected forensic pathologist in the world dr warner spitz looked at the the autopsies and the photos and the and all the reports and along with Dr. Suveron and Michael Baden, and we brought in uh, Dr. Rebecca Shu for our show. Literally every single forensic pathologist that has looked at that autopsy and looked at those injuries since then have all unanimously concluded that those were all post-mortem injuries and they were related to uh, animal predation. And, you know, and then on, on our show, we, we went further and brought in a PhD, uh, doctor of herpetology, who studies turtles for as her her career, uh, Dr. Lori Newman Lee, to look at the injuries to confirm that. We also had Jim Clemente, who did work at the body farm where they did predation studies like this, and a hundred percent across the board, those were 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 the result. Those injuries were the results of turtles feeding. The injuries were post mortem, and the uh, the cause almost certainly was animal predation. You know, and then we add to that the uh, the experiments we did where we just put meat in that water to see what happens. And and what I've said all along is besides looking at the, each individual injury and trying to determine if it was from animals, let's just back up and make it more simple. And that what we want to do with our experiment was, is it possible for there to be flesh in that water and not have turtles feed on it? And the answer is an astounding no. You know, the other thing that, Literally, he contradicted himself with that, is he talks about that it probably wasn't that, but then he says, you know, if there was blood on the banks, it would have been lapped up by animals. So, I mean, you're literally saying exactly the same thing. Right. Yeah, and there was a lot of contradiction, too, where it was like this injury was too regular to have been animals that had to have been done with a knife, and then right afterwards he says, because they're irregular, I think it was this type of a knife, like it just, it didn't. I don't know. I, I I'm I'm disappointed in in the way all of it was brought out. And then something I'll point out also because you know the the final conclusion Paul came to, which is just baffling to me, was that this was probably a serial offender, which makes like literally every single uh, again expert that's ever looked at this, John Douglas, Jim Clemente, everyone that has looked at this with with a massive extensive background in criminal behavior analysis, have all came to the same conclusion. This was a personal cause homicide. It was an impulsive act, and it was carried out by someone with a known personal relationship to the boys. So this this serial killer thing threw me, but then I looked. If you, if you go to that episode and look at the episode description, the first thing I noticed was it says, for more information, go to Discovery ID's 
latest series on the West Memphis Three. So it, it it's it seems so. Keep in mind, Paul works on Discovery ID, the show that was recently on Discovery ID. Uh, we had Dan Stidham saying that he thinks it was a serial killer. So it was not surprising to me at all that when they do this podcast episode that they came to the same conclusion as the Discovery ID special. Yeah, the, that whole profile was alarming. A cannibalistic serial offender just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And, and he goes on to say, you know, he, he doesn't care if it's little boys or little girls or adults. I mean, you know, I, I don't feel like if that's true, I think serial killers or serial offenders have a type. They don't just go for whatever. Right. Well, there's there's preferential offenders and non-preferential offenders. But you know, you know, on that on that note, he he also points out, you know, he's looking at the bindings and he's saying, you know, these bindings were put on. He doesn't note the fact that the bindings there was no hemorrhaging around the bindings except for one of Michael Moore's. The bindings were put on post-mortem. But he he talks about how the bindings were put on and to and he says they were put on in a way to leave access to the boys. He also says that the boys were stripped and laid face down and then tied all while alive. Right. Yeah. And so that doesn't fit with the evidence. It fits with, with what Peretti said back in 93 and 94, but it doesn't fit with what we actually know about the evidence. And then the other thing is, he, you know, he says he, he leaves them access. So what he's implying is because it was right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle, that it left access for sexual assault on the boys, except for there was no sexual assault. There's no evidence whatsoever that there was any kind of sexual assault on the boys. For a guy that I think is highly respected in the field, I, I was I was very disappointed in and the lack of preparation and just I mean, he just he just I, to, in my opinion he's got the whole thing completely wrong. Yeah, I, and I'm not trying to get into it too deep, but I mean I have a whole list of things that I picked up through listening that were not accurate. That you know that was just disappointing. That I felt like really swayed him. You know, without knowing the case. You know, he kept saying that. That you know the boys were basically chased into the forest. Well, as we all know now, that's not a forest. It's you know it's a patch right. of woods. You know, I think if you think it's a forest, you're insinuating that it's a large hidden. You know, it, it just doesn't seem right. It just the bottom line is we'll move on from this. Is that it? Be, it was very apparent that Paul had he he said in his own words a week and a half prior to recording that episode that he had never heard of the case or didn't know anything about the case. I think he was he was definitely ill-prepared. I think he just did a, a minimal amount of research. And and again, the only reason we're addressing it is because it was, you know, it was concerning enough to me that a bunch of our listeners who listened to it were like, hey, wait a minute. Paul Holes is a is a a well-respected detective and he just said that it was a serial killer. And that uh, you know the it wasn't turtle predation, and that he he basically says Doctor Peretti was right. The other thing to point out too that was frustrating for me it would would have been with anybody saying the things he was saying is he's talking about how he looked at these photos and he can tell that you know that they were they were they were done by a knife. He's not a doctor. He's not a pathologist. You know that you know that's why we bring in experts like Werner Spitz and Doctor Suveron and and Doctor Shu because that's what they do for a living. So it just I. I I was a little up, a little irritated by the fact that that he was making those leaps and speaking his opinion as fact when that is in fact not his area of expertise whatsoever. You know, it still sounded like he was very set on the Bojangles theory as well. You know, he talked about it multiple times about different things with the Bojangles, which I honestly, right. I mean, knowing that time period and knowing that there was a lot of there was a lot of drug problems in that area in that time frame, 
that I think it was just a junkie that stumbled in there and happened to be there at the wrong time. I 100% agree with you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This next one's from Ashley. There's been a lot of focus put on Terry Hobbs, and I would like to have him investigated further, but West Memphis is a huge stop for truckers. What are the possibilities that an unknown trucker was in the woods, doing something illegal, and the boys happened to appear, leading to the murders? All I can give you is my opinion on that and, and the opinion of the experts that have looked at it. In my opinion, there's, there's zero possibility that happened. When you, when you look at the, the behaviors of the crime scene, so pre-offense, during offense, post-offense. So if that's what if there's some trucker decides to wander off in this little patch of woods to do whatever, or they're doing drugs, or they're you know remember this is early '90s, so there could have been a a homosexual hookup or something that was taboo back then. Uh, whatever you can imagine, they were doing they weren't supposed to be doing. Three eight-year-old boys that they don't know wander into the woods. Why would they have to? First of all, kill them. So pre-offense, why would that be a trigger to say, I better kill these boys because they have witnessed what I did when they don't know those boys? And if they're a trucker, they can go get back in their truck and drive away to wherever they're from and never see any of those people ever again. Uh, so you know, it, it would be weird trigger to, to commit the crime. And then secondly, what if, you know, if, if they did commit the crime, why would they do it in the way they did? And then why would the boys, you know, during offense respond to whatever orders they gave them as for, you know, it's very clear from what we see in the crime scene that the one person didn't probably gather all three kids all at once. They were, you know, using verbal commands or, or whatever they were using to control the boys, to get them to stay put as they, as they beat and killed one after another and, you know, beat and drown, you know, they all have those skull fractures and the, and the drownings. So it's it's the behavior of the boys and their victimologies would indicate they wouldn't respond that way to a stranger. Now, unless that stranger you know was pointing a gun at them, maybe. But you'd still think they the impulse would be you know if the focus is on one for the others to run. But that certainly is 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 left up for debate. But then the big thing is the post defense behavior. So say for some reason this trucker is down in those woods, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. These three strange kids they don't know stumble across them. For some reason, they decide to kill them. For some reason, the boys comply with their control and their demands. And then afterwards, now they're in a ditch right next to an operating truck wash, next to a truck stop where they had just come from. So they know there's access from that area down to the woods. And they decide to stay with the bodies for another 20, 30 minutes and go through all the concealment so nobody finds the bodies. 
when, again, if they were a truck, uh, truck driver that didn't live in that area, then, you know, they, they would just go get in their truck and get out of there, get away. Once they were away, you know, nobody, nobody, they, nobody was thinking about touch DNA and, and fingerprints on bodies and things like that. And then also you have the bikes. So if they came from the truck stop to those woods and, and then went through all that effort to conceal the boys, for them to then go out in the open across the pipe, if they had, could even see the bikes over there, to get to the bikes to throw them into the bayou as part of the concealment, just none of that computes with a stranger of any kind, and certainly not a stranger that's passing through like a truck driver that that's not even from the area. You know, my thoughts on it too are logistically, if it's a trucker, the area of the crime scene doesn't make sense in those woods, even though those woods aren't huge. That truck stop is on the other end of those woods. So the trucker would have to go into the woods, go all the way across the woods to the neighborhood, you know, where he's close to the neighborhood to commit the crime. If the trucker's doing something in the woods that he shouldn't be doing, that he thinks he's going to get caught, it seems like it would be a lot closer to the truck stop side of it. Yeah, you'd think so. Because if you go into those woods, obviously they're gone now. But back then, you know, the down in that ditch bank was... You couldn't see down in the ditch bank from the woods if they were approaching from the truck stop. They'd have to get deep into the woods, you know, deep being, you know, it's only 50 yards wide. But so, they, you know, they go 100, 150 foot in and then it drops down into that, that ditch bank where the boys were, were killed and, and their bodies were concealed. Donna says, am I right in thinking that if the murderer came from anywhere but the neighborhood truck stop, that he would have to cross the pipe bridge to get to the bikes and then go back across the pipe again to get back to the truck stop? If I'm understanding that question correctly, there were a few access points into the woods. So I guess I'll just explain that. So from the neighborhood, anywhere in the neighborhood, you have to cross the pipe to get to those woods. From the truck stop or the truck wash, there's two different things here. Right adjacent to those woods was the Blue Beacon truck wash. And then there was a little path that went kind of behind to the south of the Blue Beacon that went up to the truck stop. Uh, so there's two different things. But so from both of those locations, they could approach the woods from the west and never cross the pipe. To the east was, it's a rice field now. I don't know what kind of field it was then. There's a field, a wide open field that goes for a long way. So this is certainly somebody didn't probably track across there. But to the north of the woods was the service road from the, the highway there. Someone could have pulled in, but I think they would have had to, at the time, pull into the drive right there by the Blue Beacon Woods to, to approach from the north. But that's the, those are the, all the possibilities for access. Alana wants to know, what are the stats for the accuracy of criminal profiles and profilers? I've read they're as low as 14%. I saw this question and I did a little research on it, and it depends on you know where you're getting your information from. Uh, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but you also have to understand what criminal profiling is. Criminal profiling is not the end-all be-all to any investigation. No one's ever profiled, you know, the, the, the behavioral analysis unit has never profiled a crime and said, that person fits the profile, go arrest them. That's not the purpose. The, what profiling is, and I think Jim has broken it down very well on our show, is a, a psychological approach to looking at the behaviors demonstrated at the crime scene and breaking them down into a very common sense place where we're looking at. So why would someone do this? So in this case, there's a lot of big factors like that. Like, you know, just look at the body concealment. You have the idea of these boys are dead in this ditch. It's daylight. There's a neighborhood full of people to the south. 
There's a truck wash full of people to the west. There's a truck stop further further to the west. You're right in the middle of everything, and you're sitting there with these three dead bodies. So what do you do next? As we just discussed a minute ago, if this is someone who is a stranger to those boys, no one expects them to be with the boys, no one knows them, and there's no relationship with the boys, what would someone do? What would their what behavior would they choose at that point? And what you typically see, and, and this is based on studies and statistics over thousands and thousands of cases, that's where the behavioral analysis gets their, their education to start working on understanding how to build these profiles. We see that the human behavior reaction to that is to get away from the bodies as quickly as possible to get away from those bodies because it is a massive risk. Anybody, even if you have a lower IQ, knows the longer I spend with these bodies, the better chance there is that someone will stumble into this area and find me with them. Because also, if we're talking about a stranger, they don't know the area. It, so so if, the, if the scenario is a stranger wanders in there and they find three eight-year-old boys in there playing or doing whatever they're doing, you would think the assumption would be this is an area where kids come to play. So they would be expecting more kids to come in there and play. And so because of that, they need to get out of there. So because they they made the choice, they, they, they made the decision to take an extremely high risk of spending a lot of time with the dead bodies to conceal them, there has to be a reason for them to do that. And the most common reason for someone to do that is because the offender expects or believes, it doesn't necessarily have to be true, but they believe people are expecting them to be with those boys. People are have seen them with the boys or seen them going into that area. So the boys cannot be found in that area or the finger will get pointed directly at them. That's what's happening in their mind. So they're using, these are, these are common, it's not complicated. It's common sense approach to why an offender would make the decisions they made. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that's accurate. It doesn't mean there can't be an anomaly. It doesn't mean that there couldn't have been a trucker that it just, for some reason, decided to do that, or that there's some serial killer that that that's their MO. They always strip kids and do that too. You know, when they kill someone and they dispose of the, the bodies or conceal the bodies in that way, you know that, that doesn't the, the the evidence doesn't seem to support that in this case, but it doesn't mean there's not an outlier or an anomaly. So what we're looking at, what what a profile is, is basically the probability. We're looking at the what is the highest probability that we're looking for. And so in this case, based on case studies of thousands of cases and analyzing the behavior in thousands and thousands of cases, that the the highest probability is that. Someone who displayed that particular behavior in this particular set of circumstances is most likely someone who has a known personal, probably authoritative relationship with at least one of those boys. Now, so what percentage is right? I don't, I don't think you can even put a percentage on it because that's all the profile is saying is that most likely that's who this was. It's not saying that is who this was. And so if this was a real-time investigation back in 93, if they had that profile, the next step would be, okay, who fits this profile? And let's start looking at them. Let's start interviewing these people. 
Let's start finding out who has that type of relationship with the boys and who has at the next step is who has alibis and then who has motive means opportunity. And then you start eliminating people and you may find out that all the people that you know of that fit the profile all have alibis and it couldn't have been any of them. Well, then you move on. And, and so I guess per statistics, that would mean the pro, that profile was incorrect. But in the, the way I look at it, it doesn't mean that profile was incorrect because the profile never said that's who you're looking for. What the profile says is most likely that's who you're looking for. And that's a good place to start with interviewing and narrowing your suspect pool. This one's from Dana. I would like to know what Terry's demeanor was that evening before and after the hour and a half absence from David. Was he, quote, normal? Did he seem more nervous? Was he disheveled at all the second time they went searching? What has Pam said about his demeanor that evening? Well, it, I'll start with what David has said, and, and the, the answer is he doesn't remember. Everybody was keyed up at the time. Everyone was, you know, by the time Terry returned at 8 o'clock and Stevie still hadn't returned, is he? But he would, he would expect Terry to be concerned. So if he was acting strange or disheveled at that at that point, that would to, that would be expected. If he if he had nothing to do with the crime, because because you know his stepson was missing, and so he just doesn't remember. And he doesn't remember if he changed clothes. He doesn't remember if he was acting differently. Uh, as far as Pam, Pam, unfortunately, her her versions of what she remembers have changed multiple times over the years, and we've heard. Um, you know, there, there was a time when she thought the West Memphis three were guilty, so she didn't give it a second thought. And then, you know, 14, 15 years later, this new evidence comes out about Terry and they're divorced by then. And now she thinks maybe Terry has something to do with it. So she, you know, she has a, a different memory of, you know, well, thinking back on how he behaved that night. Now, if you talk to her, she's not really sure. You know, if you know it, who had who did it, if Terry had anything to do with it or not, and so things have changed again. So it, it's really hard to tell. I don't think that we have any concrete way of knowing how Terry was acting that night. And you know, there's it's frustrating because they're just if going back to our previous questions about the profile, if that had been done back then, and the police took the idea seriously that it could have been someone that was close to the boys, not crazy devil worshippers in town. Then you know we might have had those answers, and that doesn't mean that it might be there might be proof Terry did it. There could be proof that Terry didn't do it if they had done their job back then. You know, I was looking through last night. There was a question that came up about with one listener that was messaging me. Uh, apparently, in another group, there's a there's a there's a group out there that believes that David Jacoby is guilty, and they were talking about the, the hair, the 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 tree stump hair, and where it was found. Uh, the conversation started. By I guess that'd be something to clear up too. Okay, some of our members are in that group too. By them saying that the uh, the hair was found 13 feet away from the the bodies. You know, all all I've ever been told is that the hair, and all I've ever seen in documentation, was that the hair on the tree stump was found somewhere remote from the actual discovery site, somewhere in the in the woods. And uh, this in this group, the discussion has they've said that while well, the hair was found 13 feet from the body. But so, but I was looking through all these old DNA reports, and so I, I guess to to clear that up, and I and I could be wrong, and I would love to have somebody show me the documentation. But I've read last night just about every single DNA report, lab report filed by Lisa Sakavikius, I think is how you pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but anyway, she was the lab tech that found that hair weeks after the murder, 
And from what I found in all those reports, number one, there's actually no report that shows when she found the hair. People have speculated that it could have been May 12th. It could have been June 3rd. But that's just based on like newspaper reports and things that show that the, the crime lab techs had gone back to the crime scene on those two dates to do luminol testing and do other testing. So they're assuming that it must have been one of those times. And from the report, I've, I've yet to see the evidence collection report when the evidence was collected. I've never, and le- it, the hair was never mentioned in trial testimony. So unless it was, it, it's in some document that I've never come across, which again, I'm not, I'm not claiming it's not. I'm just saying I've read every single one from back then. And I, I never saw anywhere where the, she says where that hair was actually found. It's it's a mystery as far as I know, and anybody that says that they know specifically where it was found and when it was found, based on what I've researched, I have yet to see where it was found. It seems it seems like people are just making up facts that don't actually exist, and and again, maybe that's not true. But so any that's I told you that I'll tell you this when I was looking through all those reports, you see that the police. They they gathered DNA evidence from Todd Moore. They got DNA evidence from John Mark Byers. Like it, I, I just don't understand how they dropped the ball here. They have all that. The only one that didn't supply fingerprints, DNA, hair samples, any of that back in the original investigation was Terry Hobbs. The other two, the fathers, submitted all that stuff. And it, you just you just wonder if they had. Number one, it gives you some insight in the fact that the police weren't even really considering that any of this was a possibility because they didn't even take the very basic steps to investigate these people. There's no police interview with Terry Hobbs from back then. There, there, there's none of that. So it, it's because of all of that that we really don't know any real questions. All we can do is speculate about behavior and, and any evidence from back then. So as far as what Terry's demeanor was, we don't know. The, the people that were around him that night didn't think that he didn't think to even consider that he had anything to do with it. The police never interviewed him, never got him on the record giving any kind of statement or, or, or story about where he was or what he was doing that night. And so it's just a big mystery now. So I have a question about something you just said, not about his demeanor, but something you said about the collection of DNA. You said they got Moore's DNA and they got Byers' DNA and they never got Hobbs' DNA. Now, do you think that that's kind of one of those things where he put it off as like, if I just don't make myself available, they'll leave me alone eventually. I mean, is that something that a perpetrator would do? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of actually kind of fits the profile. Um, in my understanding, I've never been able to verify this, this is why I've never really talked much about it. But from my understanding, from I think it's from statements that Pam has made years later, that within a week or two of the murders, that Terry took off like he, he he took off. It makes it sound together, but he left town like like and I don't remember if the whole family moved or whatever, but they just went away and just avoided the police and didn't never talk to the police. You know, it's also worth pointing out that I believe it was in 2007 when he was asked to give DNA by the police. He refused. So the only reason that we have DNA samples from Terry to compare anything to is because defense investigators took some of his cigarette butts and pulled his DNA off of those because when he was asked by police to give DNA, he refused to do it. So I don't remember. I'm sorry, Zach. I don't remember what you just asked me. That if that was something a perpetrator would do by just 
trying to not make themselves available for that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, if you have, if you committed this crime and you don't understand forensics and you don't understand how all this evidence works, and then the police are going around saying they want hair samples from people, you would assume, just like we heard Jason Baldwin say on on when he interviewed with me, that he thought that what was going to set him free was when they asked him for fingerprint and palm print and hair samples. His thought was, oh, they must have fingerprints and palm prints and hairs to compare this to. So hell yes, take mine and compare it so that you can clear me. In the same way, you would expect the the perpetrator to think if they're asking for those things, they must have something to compare them against. And if you know you're the one that did it, then hell yes, you're gonna be you're gonna you're gonna avoid that like the plague. You don't wanna give them the evidence that they need to figure out that you did it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This one's from Linda. Is David Jacoby still being harassed? Is his family still being harassed? It breaks my heart that he'd ever have to deal with that, and I'm hoping that since West of Memphis and Paradise Lost 3, that people are finally understanding that he had nothing to do with the murders and are leaving him alone. I, I'm hoping that our our docu-series, The Forgotten West Memphis 3, has accomplished that because you know his the harassment that he's taken has lightened, but that's because he moved out of West Memphis and he moved to he moved to an area a ways away from there. And he tries very hard to keep to himself, um, but he said he's still, you know, what happens is when people figure out his name, a lot of people don't know exactly what he looks like, but, you know, if he has to give his name to, for something, and they're like, David, you, oh, my God, you're that guy from, you know, from those documentaries. And, and, and so he still has the occasional time where it's thrown back in his face. CJ says, I keep hearing people say Arkansas has never fully exonerated anyone. Is that true? You know, I I don't know for sure. I've, I've heard that as well. I did a little bit of research on it, and all I was able to find is that Arkansas is one of 13 states who have never exonerated anyone through DNA evidence. Uh, they have a terrible track record of fighting DNA testing. They have a terrible track record of challenging convictions. But I I, I can't say that they have never exonerated anyone. But I but from what I've read, I can say that they've never exonerated anyone through DNA testing. Karen says, if they tested the evidence and found the real killer, would the Alfred plea be vacated with actual innocence? If so, could they then file a lawsuit for the wrongful convictions? If so, could or would they waive that to get them to test it? So the the way the process should work, if everyone's on the up and up and being honest and doing their best to find the truth, is say that we're able to test this evidence and it comes back to person X. You know, there, there's one person whose DNA is all over everything, and investigation proves this the person who actually did it. What should happen from that point is the conviction from the even it doesn't matter what type of conviction. So yes, it was an Alfred plea, but what it is is a conviction. So what should happen is that conviction should be vacated. It should be overturned based on actual innocence. Yes, and then 
the case becomes open, and then an arrest warrant would be filed for the other person, and that person would be arrested for the crime, and then they would be tried. As far as a lawsuit goes, my understanding is yes, and I think that's part of why the state of Arkansas has been so hesitant to 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 really look deeper into this case because there's there's a federal law I believe this it's it's they, they always call it a 1983 lawsuit basically saying that the state of Arkansas infringed upon the civil rights of the three convicted by imprisoning them for 18 years for something that they didn't do and yes they would be able to sue them as far as you know could they waive that right in order to get the DNA tested I think that would be I don't think that would ever happen I don't on the other side on the on the prosecution side I don't think that they would say, oh, well, we'll test it as long as you don't sue us, because then they're literally admitting that the only reason they're not testing it is because they're worried about money. Kara says, I've heard the relationship between Pam Hobbs and David Jacoby has deteriorated. Do we know when this happened and why? Uh, It has, uh, but it's a lot of what I mentioned before. You know, Pam's opinion of things has changed based on what people are telling her. There was a time when she thought there's no way that David had anything to do with this. They were longtime friends. They went to school together. They've known each other for years. Uh, but then when people, you know, when, when the, the tree stump, which by the way, I keep saying tree stump was actually a tree root is where the hair was found on a tree root when, when that was found. And then people started saying, you know, all these, these theories were out there that, uh, that David and Terry did this crime together. And there's, there's something called the four perp theory, which I'm not, you heard David mentioned vaguely on the podcast. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it has to do with the, there was, there was, um, I think they even talked about it in that other podcast, but there was, there was a a guy that was in prison who eventually died. And after he died, someone else that was in prison with him wrote a letter saying that before he died, he told him that he was part of the the murders, that there was actually Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, and two other guys were having some big orgy or something down in the down in the creek bank and the boys came in and that's why they killed him. There's the the theory is ridiculous. It as David said, you know, part of the explanation of how this happened, it goes back once earlier in the day when it's confirmed that David was at work and he wasn't home. And when there's a whole lot of, there's a million reasons why the theory is ridiculous. But that is how David really got drugged into the public spotlight first. You heard him mention that he got that subpoena and he went to that court hearing. And, and what had happened there was, uh, Mark Byers and Pam Hobbs together had filed suit against the city of West Memphis to gain access to some of the evidence. And they subpoenaed uh, David Jacoby to appear at that hearing. And he had no idea why he was supposed to go, but he had a subpoena. So he went and all it was was a big setup. When he got there, the uh, the attorneys for Pam and Mark read this letter accusing David Jacoby of doing it. And then they had, they had invited all the news media to be there, and they had him blasted on the news media saying, you know, he did it, he's a child killer. So Pam was part of that. I think she bought into that theory, and that's when the the relationship, you know, just just, just fell apart um, because, you know, she was convinced based on this letter because she was being told by the people around her that it was accurate. And from that point forward, they know they did not have a good relationship anymore, and, and I don't think they have any relationship now. You know, speaking of relationships, I the one thing I noticed in the interview was David in this second part trying to distance himself from Terry. You know, he mentioned a couple times that they weren't really friends or buddies, which I, I find a little hard to believe. I mean, I'm not putting anything on David, 
But I find it a little hard to believe that, you know, you have a guy that stops at your house to play guitar and it sounds like it wasn't the first time that he's not your friend. You know, I, I did catch that he was trying to distance himself from Terry. Yeah, well, and part of that was the way I had framed the question, which was, you know, they made it seem like, and it's been reported, and there's articles that call them that, you know, they were best friends. Uh, and what David would consider to be best friends is just not what it is. You know, he was Pam's friend. It was Pam's husband. And they and the, once they lived down the street from each other, they were closer. They would stop over more often. But, in, you know, in conversations with him, it was it was more often he would see Pam than he would see Terry. But, you know, they were close enough. You know, he told the story, like I said, you know, that's how he got the job where he was working that summer was Terry set him up with that job. So at that time, he was working with Terry and they lived down the street and Stevie liked to come over there and play sometimes. So they were they certainly were friends, as you say, but they, but they just they weren't as close of friends as uh, it was it was made out to be in some of the other documentaries. Diana says, David Jacoby stated that he tried to listen to anything and everything that Terry would say in interviews, etc., to see if he would mess up or notice any discrepancies in his statements. Did he? Did he catch Terry ever saying anything specific in an interview where David totally disagrees or knew it did not happen? Well, I mean, the biggest thing was that he said that he was with him all night. You know, he, he said that you know he that he went and and checked the pipe um himself at 6:30 and then went to David's house and then spent the rest of the night with David and th- that w- that was the big one where Dave was like that's not what happened you came by you left you came by we looked you dropped me off and then hours later or hour and a half later you came back again and we searched like it, so that was the big one was that it's just what he was saying the only thing David can really speak to is anything that relates to him he doesn't know what Terry was doing when he wasn't with him but he knows when he wasn't with him. All right. And to wrap this up, several listeners have asked if you can go through David and Terry's timeline in detail. Can you break this down for us, Bob? Uh, I'll, I'll do you one better than that. For this week's episode, as we, are, as we were wrapping up Season 5 for now, until we get to movement on the, the DNA testing, this week I want to, you know, we've been trying to, throughout the seasons, do almost a, uh, listener tribute episode you know in in our last few seasons more and more our listeners have become more and more engaged in the investigation and have done a ton of work and 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 have made leaps and bounds through season seven and season six and and through this season and there's there's one of our listeners who's asked questions on here multiple times i mentioned him last week uh who has done a ton of work and has done a fantastic job of breaking down all these interviews comparing them to the to the record the documents that we have and and he has come up with a with a very compelling timeline based on not only these statements but also on how they relate to the record. And that person is Wendell Mass. Uh, and so a lot of you who are on the Facebook fan page have interacted with with Wendell a whole lot. So in Sunday's episode, I've invited Wendell on. We got on a Skype call this week. He lives in a different part of the world, so timing was a little tricky. Uh, and Wendell himself is going to give us probably the most accurate breakdown of the timeline that I've heard to date. And so that's what you'll hear here in just two days in Sunday's episode. All right. Well, that's it for questions for this week. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And uh, Mike and Zach, it's been nice to be able to see you guys uh, through Zoom. I think this is, as long as this works out in the end, this is how we'll do the rest of these until we can all be together again. Right on. I had a lot of fun with this new Zoom thing. Well, not new, but finding out that this (laughs) technology existed. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun, guys. Yep. All right. Uh, And all you listeners, thank you guys for tuning in, and hopefully you'll tune in on Sunday, and we'll talk to you next week. 
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Haley says, Zach is now, why? I thought you were cold. Why are you shirtless again? I just want to see how long it would take Mike. I just want to see how long it would take Mike to notice. (laughs) (laughs) That was really what I was going for. Has it bothered Mike that bad that I want to see if he would notice? (laughs) (laughs) You got me, dude. Whose is the tea? Oh, that's for me, thanks. And the fish fingers. Me, please. Over here, you two. Lift. Dobby's restaurants have great deals on lots of tasty products. That's it. Mind your backs, please. <laughs> Making them feel even greater. Left a bit careful of that. So kids' meals feel larger than dining tables. Set it down gently, gently. Whoa. Find great value every day in store, like kids eat free. After all, spring's a big deal at Dobby's Garden Centres. Anything else? Have you got a bigger fork?